organizations that have diversified revenue streams uh, and are not reliant as much on large scale events have fared fairly well so far during this pandemic and will likely continue to do so. We've seen in past recessions, organizations heavily invested in annual donors, especially with large monthly files have fared very well um, as well. Uh, they don't tend, the monthly files don't tend to take as much of a hit during recessions as uh, other uh, types of donors. Rapid data uh, out of the UK has been monitoring monthly cancellation rates. And while they did go up in March initially, um, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. The great news is that those levels have in fact returned to normal in April and in fact are actually lower than they were last time this year. So I think that's positive news. Um, you know, that we can take and, and think of as sort of something that would also be happening here. Uh, again, with uh, digital, I think has become so important. And so those that set up or already had a great digital strategy in place, were able to really quickly get out to market, were able to, uh, you know, pivot on their messaging, uh, um, however that, that, uh, that case may be, and were able to get out to market quickly. Uh, and, and if you're sitting here on the call and you're currently, you don't have a digital strategy in place, I would highly encourage you to get looking at that. Um, it's one of the best ways that we can be communicating and engaging donors right now. Um, another thing that has uh, certainly been a lesson, I think, is in terms of those in-person events. Uh, so there's, I think that's one of the hottest topics right now is what do I do with my galas? What do I do with my runs or my rides and things like that? Uh, and I think the learning and, 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 you know, there's not a ton of that learning yet because a lot of those events would have taken place in the summer. And so they're trying to pivot from those. But I think that uh, an initial learning is that not everything can be transitioned to a virtual event, but those that have been transitioned or that you're looking to transition to a virtual event, I think what's really, really key with those is really great market marketing and a very, very good donor engagement strategy. You know, the, the user experience has to be so, so positive right now. Um, any of those virtual, any of those events, you're probably competing with a ton of other people for those, that same space. So having a great donor experience and a post in event engagement strategy for those donors and how to keep them engaged and, and bring them on as regular givers is really, really key. Uh, another question we got asked is what's still to come? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Um, hopefully with reopening and recovery um, sooner than later. Uh, the big question I keep talking about, and I think this, this goes in line with both our work, our fundraising, our personal lives, is what will we want to keep when we go back to the new normal uh, and what will we want to get rid of? Um, so I think that when we look at just sort of operational things, I bet there's a ton of you on this call. I know certainly our organization thought, well, we could never have everybody work from home. Uh, and I think so many of us literally overnight had to sort that out. Um, and it's incredible how people have been able to pivot and manage to figure it out. Uh, you know, I think organizations that had invested in technologies that allowed for uh, communication, uh, messaging and things like that, or, or these types of video calls, uh, maybe we're a step ahead because that was already part of their norm, but it's incredible to see how quickly people have pivoted. And I think that uh, I think that when we open back up and go back to sort of as normal, that we're going to see a lot of people that will still continue to work from home. I mean, there's lots of organizations that have already come out and said, you know, we're open to having people work from home permanently. 
Uh, I think there, there was a, a statistic in the US, it was something like uh, 3% of people uh, prior to COVID worked from home and they're expecting at least 25 to 30% will work from home post um, COVID in this, this new normal. So what does that mean in terms of how do we do business? Um, it's reduced commuting when we think of some of the, the ways we communicate with donors um, you know, during those types of times at work, um, having that communication right into their homes is a lot more frequent. Um, so there's going to be new funding models, new investments, again, in digital uh, and more well thought out donor engagement strategies. I think that there's going to be a bigger focus on longer term strategies. I think that uh, monthly and those regular givers will be really, really key uh, going forward. And another huge thing is what about all those COVID donors that have been acquired? What's the plan with them? You know, they were, they, how are you planning to retain and engage them? They were acquired and were motivated for different reasons than your other or previously acquired regular givers. So those donor journeys and those, those strategies for communications with them should be different as well. So those are all kind of things to think about in the, the what's to come category, I guess. Um, in terms of what do donors want, which was the, the last question that Jacqueline asked us to, to comment on. <clears throat> um, so I think the good news is that they want to give and they want you to provide them with engaging content and they want to be taken on a journey with you. They really want that personal connection. I think that the charities that have been able to sort of strip away that um, front and really kind of be one-on-one, -on -one, you know, like I'm, I'm coming to you from my house I'm writing this letter from my dining room table type of thing. You know, it's a really great way to connect with donors. We're all basically living the same experience right now. So there's some great opportunities there. Uh, we recently co conducted a survey of a thousand uh, Canadians and wanted to try to find out what are people thinking about giving right now during COVID. Um, and Jacqueline does have a, a couple um, statistics. We can send that out after Jacqueline, if, it's, if that's easier. But the great news is that 45% of people plan to make the same level of donation as they did in 2019. So I think that's really positive. 23% um, actually plan to give more than they did in, in uh, 2019. So that's, that's, a, that's a huge benefit right now. Um, I think that you'll see uh, many of the donors are wanting to sort of focus on local giving or uh, we found at least 27% of people said that they wanted to do that. Um, and another great statistic was 39% who currently give said that they would actually consider becoming a monthly donor. So it's a great time to reach out uh, to those donors that have been committed to you for a while and, and start that conversation. And the most important statistic that I want to share with everyone was that 70% of people want you to keep fundraising. So I think that that's a really positive message. Uh, and on that, I will turn it over to Caroline. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Amy. That was fantastic. Um, and, and a great uh, stat, I think, to, to end on. Um, hello, everyone. I was kind of scrolling through the, the Zoom um, folks on the call, and I see many uh, familiar faces. I know some of you are just joining by phone, and I completely understand because uh, there's been many a days where I have not wanted to zone uh, join a Zoom call uh, live. So um, again, just really pleased with this fantastic um, turnout and uh, thank you so much. Well, to, to kind of answer some of the um, same questions, I think it's important to give a little bit of context as to uh, my journey over the last couple months because I think um, it is uh, part of, of the story. So 
as um, some of you may know, I left Plan International as CEO uh, back in February, and then end of February uh, started a new role as CEO of Trillium Health Partners Foundation, which is um, one of the, the major hospitals, for those of you who don't know, out in sort of the west end of, of the city. Um, it's actually uh, the largest hospital um, by, by bed count in, in Canada. Um, but I was two weeks on the job before COVID hit and uh, had barely met all of my team, barely met anybody in, in the hospital because some folks were on uh, vacation and such. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, I'm dealing with this, this crisis and uh, it was obviously very challenging. I had a chance, I think, to meet about three donors in person and then we've moved to, to sort of the, the emergency measures. So I feel at some point I'm going to write some kind of book about starting a new job in a, a global pandemic and uh, leadership lessons learned. So let me let me see if I can share with you some of the um, initial uh, thoughts that, that I have at this point. Um, you know, what, what has changed? That's the first question. Well, I can give you all a little bit of an inside view because um, one of the, the researchers who's actually advising the province and advising the premier on population health works at the um, Institute for Better Health at, uh, at Trillium. And um, she sort of has given us a sneak peek of, of what's to come. So, you know, brace yourself. Um, here's, here's sort of the inside scoop. I don't think there's gonna be any big uh, surprises, but really until there's a vaccine, there will be uh, no gatherings of really more than 20 people. So I think this has significant implications, particularly for organizations that are heavy on events. Um, we also at, at Trillium depend on events quite significantly. So um, really, there's probably going to be no kind of mass gatherings until earliest 2022. Um, you know, we're going to continue to probably see this, this uh, world of social distancing where we're going to have to stay six feet apart at all given times. It's going to become mandatory as, as we go out and about, um, if we're close at all, to be wearing masks. Um, lots of added kind of cleaning. So, you know, if you even just think of um, charities that do resume um, some of the work in the office, there's these added costs that we're going to have to to incur that we never would have thought of. Um, the, the other pieces, I think, again, is we're going to start to see kind of blips. So there's going to be this period called the dance where they're going to ease measure, measures, which we're starting to see now. But if there's a spike, they're gonna sort of, you know, come down. So we're gonna be living in this sort of uncertain world and it's gonna be difficult for planning. So even if you do plan, let's say an event with 20 folks, um, it could be that there's a surge of the virus. And so then we, you know, things start to, to change. So I think we have to almost get used to this, um, this dance as they're calling it, or this unpredictability, which is gonna be with us for a while. Um, you know, one of the best ways they're, they're saying uh, to be able to, to meet with folks, so this will be important over the summer months, is outside. So if you are looking to uh, cultivate um, donors, uh, especially let's say some of your major gift donors, uh, there's going to be sort of a window this summer, but it'll be important to stay six feet away and uh, ideally do it, do it outside. But all this to say, um, you know, we we are sort of thinking that things might sort of go back to normal. And I think the reality is, is we now live in a brave new world and uh, fundraising lives, lives in a brave new world. So, I mean, that, that's really what's changed. Um, you know, I, I think 
what's interesting too, and, and there hasn't probably been a lot of talk about this because we're just dealing with the um, issues of the pandemic right now, uh, the, the uh, projection is that we will start to um, go into depression. And I don't want to um, scare too many folks with that word, but uh, you know, I don't want you to think of sort of the 1920s and 30s depression. Depression is just simply um, many months of, of sort of economic uh, shrinkage. We, they are anticipating this because again, um, COVID will, will be with us for a while. So I think again, we're, we're going to be working in a tougher economic situation than we've worked in. And my sense is, um, if I look at the charitable sector, we're going to have potentially winners and losers. And I know that sounds a bit harsh, but um, stay with me for a second. I think what we'll see is, you know, the organizations that can really pivot and be agile, as Amy was talking about, that can, um, you know, really, uh, I think, move quickly, embrace what's, what's, what's happened, um, not get stuck in the past, will will do well be able to remain relevant they'll do well organizations that struggle with that that perhaps are um you know somewhat bureaucratic or they have cultures that are um a little bit let's say uh heavier or more traditional i think they're going to find it very difficult moving forward um the next question is what are the the lessons in all of this and um i'll share something with you that i shared with my team i have the uh pleasure of uh, attending um, a course at Harvard Business School this past summer. They have um, a, a course for nonprofit leaders. Uh, you can often get um, scholarships through the uh, Harvard Business School Alumni Association. They're probably going to be offering it online this summer, um, but it, it is a fantastic uh, course if you have the chance um, to, to take it. But they, uh, lots of case studies that you have to read, unfortunately, but there's one um, about Ernest Shackleton. And I share this because it is so relevant. When I was reading it last summer, um, I did not think this would be relevant to leadership, but I, I, I don't think any case study was more relevant. And if you know anything about Ernest Shackleton, he was essentially an explorer in the Antarctic. And he took this team into the Antarctic and uh, long story short, weather went really bad. Their, their boat completely fell apart and they essentially drifted on an iceberg for uh, you know, almost a year. And um, he's heralded as being a, a hero because um, the, he actually um, came home and truly saved every single person on his team. And um, it, it's just simply unheard of given the circumstances. But what was so interesting is um, as he was putting together this, this expedition, um, he put an ad out in the paper. And normally people uh, doing these, these kind of, you know, explorations to the Antarctic would request, you know, skills. You'd need to be a seaman or, um, you know, ha have experience doing this. And the difference with Ernest Shackleton is in um, the, the newspaper ad that he put out there, uh, the only thing he asked for were people with great attitudes. And that's what he hired for. And um, I just think that this is so relevant right now. And I'm seeing it within my own organization. I know others are seeing it, where you see some people thriving in this, in this um, environment as best as can be because their attitude is we're gonna get through this. Um, I'm gonna change, I'm gonna do whatever I need to do. We're, we're in this together, we're gonna step up and we're gonna find a way forward. And I think then there's others that are, are, are quite, you know, are, are struggling to, to be honest. And I think so much of, of, of our 
um, way forward is going to depend upon the attitude of the leader, the attitude of, of, of the teams, the ability um, to pivot. And I love Jamie's point about the fact that, you know, so many of us thought, well, we could never work from home. And over the years, I've asked, you know, my team questions um, to, to sort of prompt discussion and, and prompt innovation. And it's kind of like, well, what would we do if we you know, only, you know, if there was a global pandemic virus and all of us had to work from home and, and how would we do our work? And, you know, we kind of like, you know, think of the, the, the ideas that might come out of it, but we don't really take it seriously. And I think there's going to be more of this. Like, what if we, um, you know, couldn't do any of our events in person anymore? What would we do? And I think, again, it all comes down to sort of attitude as, as we start to figure out this brave new world. Um, what's to come, um, you know, I think we've been talking a lot about the virus. We haven't been talking about the economic impacts on society as much. I think we are going to see that. Um, you know, the, the statistics are a bit concerning in, in Canada. Uh, the the um, Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit, 10 million people applied for that. And if you think about that, we're about 35 million in Canada. Um, let's assume that 20 million of us are, are working. If 10 million applied for it, that's half of the working population in Canada. So, um, you know, it, it is significant um, and, and we'll need to track closely as to what that means. I think also too, um, if you look at the depression though, after the depression came a huge period of, of innovation and, and growth. And um, I think there, there's the potential for that out of this, this crisis. The good news is that our governments know, based on the lessons um, from the depression, that uh, government and um, you know, their economic levers will play a critical role in, in recovery. And so I think actually um, we, we will be in, in okay shape. And then last but not least, um, well, you know, what, what do donors want? Um, relevance, I think, is going to be so critical. Um, you know, I, I, I actually feel very blessed at this moment to be working in healthcare because I don't think there's anything more relevant um, than, than especially community hospitals, quite honestly, not, not even academic um, hospitals to a certain degree because it's been actually all of the community hospitals that have been really bearing the brunt of COVID. So I think working in the most um, relevant area, I, I, I just feel really um, humbled. So I think the question is how do we maintain the relevance um, in this new world of so many of the charities? And they're all worthy causes, but I think as the world has shifted, everybody is gonna have to rethink their, their relevance to society. Um, I think there's gonna be much more focus really on um, the things that are important to, to, to people. So I'm hoping that um, out of this, people will continue to see charitable giving as absolutely critical. And then I would say the last thing um, is to a certain degree, our, our sector, and this might be a bit controversial, our sector can become very sort of slick. And we've lost the authenticity. And I've been talking to a number of donors um, over the last little while that have been super frustrated with uh, the kind of slickness sometimes of our material, the slickness of our approach. Um, and again, I just don't have a better word, but sort of, you know, the, the slickness of the way we, we work with donors and they crave authenticity. And, and I think that um, we're gonna have to move away from those kind of communications. I think we've become 
overly sophisticated, forgetting actually that donors give to us for authenticity. And sometimes we think that the uh, sophistication is, is what's going to motivate donors because it makes our organizations look better than the, the, the competition. But I think actually um, authenticity is really uh, what, what is a sort of competitive advantage, if I can call it that. So I will uh, stop there. Thank you, Carolyn. Lots to think about. <laughs> so I th does anyone have any questions or um, any other comments? I think maybe if any, from anyone on the call that wanted to sort of weigh in on any of those as well. Not everyone at once. I think maybe Kathy or you are just muted, I think. Hi, Amy. It's Anne Rosenfield. Hi. Hi. Um, great to hear you guys. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to add a note. I've done 19 Zoom calls with major donors in the last two weeks, which A, I highly recommend. <laughs> but one of the things I think kind of the Caroline's point and to your point, when we start thinking about our different donors and our different donor groups, it's really clear to me that people who are over 80, um, whatever their supporters are, what they're telling me is they're not gonna be comfortable to go out even when the province tells them they're comfortable to go out. So I think one of the things we're gonna start to think about, just as we're supposed to customize our approaches anyway, is to bear in mind that more vulnerable people are maybe not going to want to speak to us face to face, possibly for years. But there may be other donors who are like, sure, I'm out, come to my backyard. And I think we're just going to have to add that variable in. Absolutely. I, oh, go ahead. I, I, oh, sorry. I, I agree. I mean, I think what um, they're, they're going to actually start to advise is as they open up um, the uh, province um, and, and they're taking kind of leads from, from Sweden and others um, who, I mean, Sweden has pretty much kept open the whole time, but they've just told they're vulnerable to stay, stay at home. Um, I think older donors, which quite honestly disproportionately fund charitable organizations, whether we, we like it or not, we always talk about engaging kind of, you know, next gen and, and new donors. Um, all of the data still shows that um, you know, th their giving is significant to us. The recommendation for them will be to continue to, to self-isolate as much as possible. And then there, oh, sorry. sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I don't know, Jacqueline, if you want it, there's a couple questions on um, the chat. Uh, there was uh, from Anne, any advice for those organizations that have had a weak fundraising program? For example, not much stewardship. And Caroline, do you wanna <laughs> comment sure. on that? Or <laughs> um, yeah, and there, there was another interesting comment. I think uh, it was from Kathy about organizations with, with reserves. Um, I'd love to address that one too. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I, I think it is going to be hard uh, for organizations, and this goes back to the point that, that throughout this, there's going to be sort of winners or losers, you know, that have had weak fundraising programs to really get something significant started. Um, you need the capital to be able to invest to raise money. But right now, um, folks are being cautious and boards are being cautious to say, well, we don't want to dig into our capital too much because you know, who, who knows what's to come. Um, I think that donors are probably giving to their existing organizations and, um, you know, probably making uh, choices right now. And, and I, I think it's going to be harder for new organizations. That being said, I think if you are really relevant to uh, this COVID world, then I think that um, that might be the exception. So if it's, let's say, food banks or mental health organizations or obviously health organizations, I think those might be the exception. But if I'm thinking of, let's say, uh, literacy or arts, I, I think they'll have, have a tougher time. Um, I wanted to comment on just this question around reserves because uh, we, we've been looking at this and I've been talking actually to um, a group of uh, kind of see uh, women CEO colleagues who work in the charitable space that, that, that I belong to, sort of an informal group. Um, I think that uh, this is going to be key and again will will also determine whether there's sort of um, winners and losers out of out of this. If you don't have reserves to keep you going through these um, challenging times or a way to build up those reserves quickly, so you might not have them, but you have uh, a number of monthly donors, so you can say, all right, we're not going to put money into program uh, with these dollars right now, but we're going to just quickly build up our, our reserves for a couple months. Um, if, if you don't have them, I think it's going to be really, really challenging. So I've been looking at my reserve situation. Um, I've been, um, you know, cognizant. We've got about a year. If we brought in no money, we've, we've got about a year of, of reserves. So it's going to be able to help us sort of, you know, weather, weather the storm. Um, but if, if you don't, um, and I know a number uh, who, who don't, um, I think this is going to be much tougher. Some of them have said, you know what, um, you know, I'm a literacy foundation. Um, all of our libraries are closed right now. Uh, we probably have about, you know, five months of, of operating um, costs and uh, they're, they're really struggling to be relevant. And I, um, again, I, you know, I, I really, really feel for these organizations because I think it's going to be really tough. Yeah, absolutely. Were there... Oh, oh goodness. A couple other questions. <laughs> Uh, so there was, oh my goodness, they're coming in fast and furious here. <laughs> um, there is one, uh, I'm working with a social service education training organization that solely relied on government funding to operate in the last 25 years. Uh, there are anticipated reductions to our funding and we'll need to fundraise. Any advice? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I, I, for, for me, I, I, I think you need to start getting that strategy in place as quickly as possible um, and finding, figuring out what is your, we, we talk a lot with a lot of uh, the organizations we work with about what is your COVID why, like why, what is your reason that people want to give to you during this crisis? Um, so I think getting that uh, really worked out and getting a plan in place, uh, you know, and, and if it's a matter of, 
uh, you know, as Caroline was talking, not, not a ton of funds to go out there. You're like maybe digital's the way you need to go uh, to start off with. Um, Caroline, do you wanna, do you have any advice in on that one? Um, yeah, I mean, to, to um, get a fundraising um, program sort of off, off the ground right now, it's gonna take money to do so, right? So you've gotta spend money to kind of make money. Same thing with fundraising, you've, you, you sometimes have to make an upfront investment to raise some, some money and then over time you acquire new donors and, and they give, but it takes kind of an upfront investment. I think the question is, um, you know, does the organization have the ability to make some of those upfront investments? Uh, you know, if not, there's kind of really sort of low, low cost uh, ways you can start. Um, you know, is there the is there a board? Is there a volunteer uh, base that you can tap into? Um, you know, it might include, uh, you know, picking up the phone and, and speaking to people and kind of the team doing that directly without incurring, let's say, other costs. I would try and, and start there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think you won't be alone because government, uh, you've probably seen how much they've spent on things. At some point, they will have to make some choices. And, and it could be that more organizations will try and enter the fundraising space to, to plug some of these gaps. But I would really start with, you know, who's closest to you and um, closest to your organization and, and can you go out to them and ask? There's a question just to clarify, what do I mean about um, <laughs> sort of being too, too slick? Um, Again, I think it's like the super glossy brochures, uh, and, and I'm, I'm talking probably more about some major donors here, but, you know, really glossy, expensive brochures, and, and we even see this on, on the, the kind of um, mass donor side that look like they're expensive or the magazines that get sent out um, and, you know, donors or, or, or sorry, they're, they're really kind of elaborate proposals and donors are saying like, just, just send me like a PDF document and tell me what you need. Um, in fact, I, I, uh, I raised a gift uh, for half a million dollars and the donor said, you know, just send me an email with like a list of the things that you, you really need. Um, don't send me like a fancy proposal. Like, and the reason I think this is going to be so important is because um, we're hearing about the economic impact. We're in the midst of, of this global pandemic. If we as charities start sending out really sort of, um, you know, sleek, um, and I, I would say almost overly professional material, I think we're going to be sounding a little bit tone deaf, quite honestly, given what, what folks are going through and given the situation. So I think it's sort of a back to basics mentality. Yeah. And, and I just want to add, um, you know, even on the mass side, um, we've seen some examples of, for example, uh, emails going out, um, you know, head to head ones with, with headers and without, and the ones that are without headers that just look like an email from, from my inbox were performing uh, better than the ones that are sort of like all nice and visually appealing. Uh, and then there's been some, um, in terms of uh, direct mail, some letters that have gone out. Again, what I was kind of referring to before was making that, that humanity. It's not about, you know, me as the CEO. It's about me as the person that's writing you this letter while my child is, you know, coloring in the other room coming to you and telling you what the reality of the situation is for our organization. You know, we, we often talk about how donors 
give to people. They're, they're giving to, to humans. So really humanize those communications um, with them as well to connect. There's a few other questions here. Um, uh, I'd love to hear what virtual events would look like. Wouldn't everybody? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I've seen a ton of interesting things, everything from, um, I'm sure everybody's heard about some of those marathons that people have run in their, their living rooms. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think the key is about making uh, your virtual event, if, if it's something that can be transitioned to virtual, uh, something that's easy for people to do. Uh, that's not a huge uh, commitment, but that people can get behind and is is easily replicatable. Um, and then again, I just I think that the user experience is so so key to getting people engaged and brought on. Um, you know, we've seen lots of great examples of there's all these different technologies now where um, people that are doing Facebook fundraisers and you can get the information from there so that you can further engage, which was an issue previously. Um, so there's lots of new technologies. I mean, the, the time is ripe for that to be happening um, about communicating with donors and events uh, in the event space or, um, you know, virtually. Carolyn, do you have anything you wanted to add? Uh, yeah, I was just reading a few of the other uh, um, questions too. There's one about campaigns. Um, you know, I, I think th this is going to be the biggest, biggest thing to, to, to relook at. I was thinking the other day about, you know, some organizations that are really, really event heavy. Um, you know, uh, some of the health charities, for instance, that they have, you know, the walks and the rides. And um, I was even thinking of, 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 let's say, someone like Princess Margaret, too. They're very heavy in events and um, organizations that, you know, really depend on, on, on galas and, and such. Um, some of them are anticipating up to 75% drop in income. Yeah. And um, I think it's going to take a while just for people to keep... Uh, um, adjusting to this new reality and so digital events um, won't probably in the short term make up all of the revenue but one of the things we have been looking at it at Trillium is actually um, oftentimes these digital events cost a lot less so how do we make sure we're still raising the same amount of net revenue to go towards um, programs uh, so keep in mind like maximum 20 25 people together uh, what's that going to look like? And then how do you use technology to maybe connect people wherever they may be? Or can you have events where um, you can keep the social distancing? So for instance, if you're doing, let's say, um, you know, I'm kind of uh, brainstorming here, but let's say you're doing a walk and, you know, or, or let's say a run, everybody kind of goes at the same time. Um, well, maybe you have people in smaller groups and it's staggered so that you can kind of maintain distancing. I mean, that could be a, a, another, another piece. I just want um, to add on to that one. I just want to share, uh, Leah used to shared a really neat um, fundraiser that she was doing. And it was where they, her family was participating and they do a certain amount of walk every day and then they can go online and they're actually, I think it's walking the Inca trail. So that could be another neat thing that you could do, like in terms of creating a virtual experience, have people go and do their own thing. And then like, you know, and I think it interacts with their uh, like Fitbit or something like that. So that, I just thought that was a really cool example. And, you know, I don't think many of us are going to be able to get to the Inca trail anytime soon. So kind of a neat yeah. experience too. Sorry. Um, 
No, no, it's okay. A, a couple of years ago, I actually launched when I was at CAMH um, Foundation, uh, th this um, fundraiser called One Brave Night. And the whole concept was you sort of, you know, stayed up through the night, um, took a sunrise uh, selfie, posted it online, and um, you got people to sponsor you to, to stay up and, and raise funds for, for mental health. Um, and, you know, in the first year, it raised close to 700000 It went on to raise, um, actually, you know, higher than that, I think, hit the million-dollar mark. And uh, a lot of people would kind of get together wherever they were um, and, you know, host their own sort of um, event. And, and we would do it all, again, on, online, and people would share kind of digitally what they were doing. And, you know, I kind of think back and, and say to myself, oh, my gosh, it was a little bit ahead of its time because it's such a COVID-friendly fundraising um, event. But I, I think things like that will probably, um, we'll, we'll see more of because, again, you can get people together in small events or in, in small groups, um, and how do we connect with them, you know, d digitally? Um, I saw a question just about campaigns and how campaign plans will be impacted. Uh, Trillium, we were kind of meant to go into campaign, <laughs> the silent phase this year. Uh, it's not going to be a very good year, <laughs> but um, I think all, everybody's looking at extending timelines. Um, I think, especially for, for some of the capital projects, my sense will be that uh, whether it's kind of, you know, universities or hospitals or other type buildings, the province will probably um, lower local share requirements because it's a great way to stimulate the, the economy. Um, so I think that they're just gonna be kind of ex extended. Um, there was another question uh, from Rachel about engagement strategies, retaining new COVID donors. Uh, do you have any more insights on some key points to include in this um, sole fundraiser at a provincial food bank? Um, yeah, I mean, food banks, my goodness. Um, the Ottawa Food Bank is, is one of our clients and they, like, it's been astronomical how many new donors they have acquired during this time. Uh, and, you know, as I said, those donors are coming on board for a different reason than some of those other donors were. So, I mean, my advice to you would be to take a look at your existing donor journey um, and look at, <laughs> uh, look at the way that you were previously communicating with those donors. And let's take a look at where you can infuse these points of what has inspired them to give during this time uh, and how you can alter those things. Uh, the key will be getting them engaged with your ongoing. I mean, I think, unfortunately, the, the need for food banks um, as part of this crisis is going to be ongoing for quite some time. Um, so your, your, uh, your, your COVID why is, is easily built into that. But um, I think the sooner you can sort of lay out that and, you know, we often talk about it's strategy versus tactics. So think about what the strategy is. What's the message you want to go out with them, go out to them with? Um, and then look at what are the tactics to engage them in those conversations. I know, Caroline, if you wanted to add anything. No, I, th I think you've covered it. Um, oh, somebody else just gave an, another great, uh, a couple of great examples. So in a virtual, uh, an arts organization did a non-gala gala. I've heard about that. Who is it? Uh, Jimmy, not Jimmy Fallon, the other... Jimmy Kimmel is doing that dress up Fridays or something like that. I think, you know, people are looking for a reason to kind of <laughs> put, put regular clothes on out of their uh, pajamas, right? So, you know, so you could do something at home. I've seen some of those as well. Uh, and another example they gave was of uh, the Sporting Life 10K benefiting Camp Uchigas. 
uh, just happened on Mother's Day and they changed it to we still run for Ooch. Um, so that, that's another one that somebody could look at. Canadian Mental Health Association nationally does a ride don't hide in June. So they're going to be doing that virtually as well. So good to see it's still going on because it's been a tradition for a few years. So yeah. Great. And Paula's given a, a couple different uh, examples there for everyone. So uh, Sick Kids Great Canadian Cycle Challenge. Um, good examples of getting outside. Uh, it was created by an Australian group, but worked well in Canada. So a uh, national scope focused on local charities. That's another interesting one that people can check out. Just looking at time here, Jacqueline, I know um, people probably have 9 a.m. Um, <laughs> Zoom calls to get to. Yeah. Um, is there any maybe final questions or comments that anyone had that they wanted to pop in here? Um, oh, a few more. So one other thought. Oh. One other thought to everyone. Think about collaboration. Yes, absolutely. Are there events that can join forces? The market doesn't get too cluttered. Absolutely. I mean, my goodness, could you imagine if all of the in-person events try to go virtual? It's going to be uh, very busy. In um, Fighting Blindness Canada is doing their cycle for sight virtually. Oh, online bingo. That's a really, <laughs> really uh, neat idea. Um, yeah, I think I think the other thing uh, that'll be interesting to watch is that whole gaming kind of aspect of things. I mean, people are far more engaged in in that now. So how can that be leveraged for fundraising? The um, the, the other thing I will say it, it just quickly before we uh, wrap up, and then maybe we can pass this to to Penny um, if you just want to uh, close up. But um, someone brought up the issue of collaboration, and I think that's actually going to be really really critical. And maybe I can just share a quick story, but. Um, uh, when COVID first hit, and I noticed sort of all the hospitals were out there doing, um, you know, different activities, all kind of competing because there, there is no national platform for, for healthcare. Um, you know, I thought, uh, you know, there was a lost opportunity because there, there were national bodies that wanted to support, but, you know, they didn't want to give to one hospital over another. They wanted really a national solution. So um, I, I called up a couple of folks in the space and, um, Princess Margaret, Sick Kids, uh, UHN. We we had some folks from Vancouver General and uh, hospital foundations out in in Halifax and um, Quebec. And a few of us came together and said, "Well, what if we set up a national platform for this?" And and um, so we started this thing called the Frontline Fund. And uh, to date, li like literally, this was something that was built out of um, you know my kitchen, other people's kitchens, and off the side of our our desks. And um, it's raised over ten million dollars. And um, it's supporting 160 uh, hospitals across the country, mainly frontline workers. And um, again, you know, came out of out of nowhere. So literally, uh, you know, we were able to raise $10 million um, just coming up with a, a collaborative idea. And we got a number of Canadian corporations on board because they wanted to support healthcare, but they wanted to support something um, that that was national. So uh, Canadian Tire, um, the Canadian uh, Medical Association came on board, Rogers, um, Maple Leaf Foods, TD Bank, and, and I mean, it was, it's been pretty incredible. And then we've also had donations from individuals. So again, I think if we can look for opportunities for collaboration, that's also part of the secret sauce in all of this. Um, it feels innovative. It feels like charities are 
you know, working, um, you know, together and not sort of at, at, at odds. So, uh, you know, if, if there's opportunity to, to replicate um, that, I think that, uh, as I see Paula saying, it'll be very relevant and timely for folks. We highlighted that fund in our newsletter last Friday. So if you if you want to on our website or you can go through the newsletter and read more about it as well. Yeah, Thank you, posted it here. Yeah, hi uh, everybody. This is Aki uh, Temiseva from Children Believe. Hi, um, hi Aki. <laughs> hi. Sorry, I've got one of those mornings where I don't look that presentable, but I promise next time I'll have my picture up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Thanks uh, uh, so much, AFP and Caroline and Amy. This is, you know, I think this is what the sector needs. Um, we need to come together and share, just echoing your words, Caroline. Um, so I work at, um, at Children Believe, which is kind of a $40 million type of organization. So could be one of those that if they, we don't become agile, you know, we're in the danger zone. So um, I really want to, you know, take those learnings at heart. And uh, we find that authenticity is, is a big thing too. And, and, and we have some good results in that. Um, I wanted to also add to the events discussions, obviously, you know, I know uh, my previous employer right to play was very dependent um, on, on events, uh, large events. I think one good example that um, right to play Netherlands, it's mostly in Dutch, uh, <laughs> that they are sharing on LinkedIn at least. Um, they did their sports quiz uh, virtually uh, for the first time. So it's about a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand euro type of event. Um, it doesn't say exactly how much they made this year, but uh, it seemed that um, they, they really had success, a good participation. It worked. So that's some for if anybody's looking for any learnings there. I don't know how willing they are to to share, but at least you can see what they do publicly, uh, share about it. Um, and so the uh, looking at topics going forward, I think it'd be great also to talk about how can we get best out of our teams and. Um, and I guess if this prolongs, you know, also how do we make difficult, difficult decisions with our teams? Who are those who have a great attitude? And, um, but it's just uh, an encouragement um, uh, for AFP to keep going and be the convener for us. And so thanks, everybody. Oh, thank, thank you so much. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I think these conversations are so important. And I know uh, we put together um, a host of them going over the summer and things like that. But I think, you know, I think the more we can just collaborate, there's some, um, there's Facebook groups, you know, feel free to ask your questions um, through, through the AFP channels. And, you know, we're happy to be there and, and open these conversations or I'm happy to hop on a coffee chat, maybe not at 8am in the morning, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, anytime anyone wants to chat, I think we're, we want to be there for you as well. So I'll turn it over to Penny, um, maybe to Thank you. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I found this very informative and very interesting to hear. Thank you both. Um, appreciate your time today. I know everyone's busy and Zoom calls throughout the day can get tiring. So thank you. Um, we welcome any suggestions for topics. We do want to try and do these every second Friday. So if you want to reach out to the staff and I, let us know what you'd like to see. That would be great. Um, in terms of virtual events, we are looking at a virtual Congress this year. So you'll see more information coming out shortly on uh, what that will be um, just trying to work out the details but we definitely want to get everyone together again in november even if it's through a zoom screen like this so thank you um, thank you to the staff for helping put this together today it's been a great event and i hope everyone enjoyed it nice to meet we meet everyone as well hope, hope to meet in person at some point yes <laughs>
And just to, to echo that, again, I'm um, amazed at the turnout for, you know, 8 a.m. On a, on a Friday before a long weekend. And, um, you know, Amy and I are, have obviously shared our, our stories, but I think that there's so many great stories. I mean, many of you ha have your own. And I think that this is just going to be a wonderful time to really, I think, learn, learn from each other and, and, and try different things. So, um, again, you know, really appreciate uh being able to, to chat and um, look forward to learning from all of you as well as we navigate this together. I'll just add one more thing and just introduce Paula Atfield. I'm sure everyone, most people know her. Uh, she's the chair of AFP Canada and you'll see um, our schedule coming out shortly around Canada Day. Paula and Lisa Davey will be speaking about any um, updates from AFP Canada as well. Thank you, Paula. Great. Thanks everyone. Have a great day and a great long weekend. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.